Hello again everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones and House of the Dragons show on the Podbreed Network. My name is Rob, and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times, and I've read Fire and Blood by George R.R. R. Martin. And my name's Jay, I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones, I have read Fire and Blood by George R.R. R. Martin, and I've also read all five books in the Song of Ice and Fire series. You'll notice that Lizzie didn't do her intro this week, and that's because she's not here to do her intro. Um, for the first time ever on The Longest Night, <laughs> Lizzie is not on an episode. That's Although she is with us in spirit. At the moment, she's just a little busy, and I had to suddenly reschedule the uh, the recording session. We were supposed to do it <laughs> yesterday on Wednesday night, but we did it on Thursday night instead because... I'm a silly boy, and I don't organise my <laughs> calendar very well. But um, she is with us in spirit. She has sent us a short review. We will read that out presently. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Longest Night GOT. That is at Longest Night GOT. Our title music was written and provided by friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas. And you can find all of his available work in the description. All right, then. Let's get going into this one. This week we are going to be discussing Season 1, Episode 6 of House of the Dragon, entitled The Princess and the Queen. It was written by Sarah Hess and directed by Miguel Sapochnik. It was first broadcast on the 25th of September 2022 to an audience that was 3% larger than whatever the figure was last week. Again, HBO, please release the raw data. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, At this point, in a usual episode, we would throw to Lizzie and ask her what she thought of the uh, the episode that that we're covering, but it would just be silence if we did that this time. Uh, So... In lieu of her being able to provide her thoughts in audio form, she's sent us a text, and we're going to read it out, and we're going to let you all know what Lizzie thought of the princess and the queen. I struggled with this one. The extended length of the episode, combined with the time jump, makes for an episode that felt more hollow than what I've become used to. I don't envy the writers for having to incorporate such a huge temporal leap in the story, but much like with Joffrey and Lenor's relationship in the previous episode, it's difficult to be fully invested in certain storylines when you're given the bare minimum of background and they come to a screeching halt before they've even truly started. Not a terrible episode by any means, but a much more difficult episode to watch than the previous five. Um, I wouldn't entirely disagree with mm-hmm. Lizzie. I think I'm a little more forgiving this week. I should say that the grade that Lizzie gave to this episode was a 7 out of 10, so still a positive experience, but compared to previous weeks, she saw weaknesses. Jay, what do you think of yeah. The Princess and the Queen? Uh, my my quick, very, very quick review would be to say that I liked it, but... <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe it's the first episode so far that's had a but. <laughs> mm. Um uh weirdly also does have a butt in it um but yeah i i liked it there were certain parts of it that i thought were very 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 good but it was the first episode i think so far where the 
the decisions that have been made and some of the changes that have been made kind of made me go hmm was that was that the right thing to do and it's interesting hearing what lizzie said because if she was here i would ask very specifically certain questions because i sat there worrying like i don't know if someone who hasn't read the book <laughs> or isn't like completely immersed in it would be able to follow some of this um mm. yeah so while enjoying it i did it did it, it was the first one that's kind of made me a little bit worried about what might be to come well i think I was only slightly concerned about this episode because I know that this is the last big time jump. There's like one more to come where like yeah, three of the children will get played by older characters and then it's like full speed ahead. Of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was this, what you've said there is really been touched upon well by uh, Miles McNutt who used to write for the AV Club and now just writes for himself because the AV mm-hmm. Club was gutted and filleted a few years ago and its tv coverage is bad now um and in his analysis of the episode he said it's really interesting to watch a massive tv show like this just hold its hands up and say what we're doing here isn't going to serve the story very well right now but it will in season two yeah and this was something that i always kind of thought anyway about how this season was going to go compared to the the first Game of Thrones season, I guess, which is that the, yeah. the first season of Game of Thrones, they didn't know that they were going to be renewed because it was a huge risk. And so they tried to make season one as much of a contained story as they possibly could, which meant yeah. that you had four to five different plot lines that all kind of you know, they, they begin, they expand, they come back together. You know, Ned Stark's death is the beginning of Game of Thrones, but it yeah. may well have been the very end. It may well have been what caused viewers to turn off and not mm-hmm. want to tune in the following week. You know, it's like every single storyline kind of finishes in a place where you think, yeah, they could conceivably end it here. You know, there's a few like, you know, the war in the Riverlands with, you know, the Lannisters and the Rob's army, maybe yeah. not. Um, but with House of the Dragon, it feels like they weren't 100% sure about getting renewed. And so what they've done is that in order to force the renewal of season two, it seems like they've raced through season one with the promise of sort of going like, oh, but it's going to be amazing in season two. Like, I've never, never known a show just concede that the first season is just all set up. Yeah. And like, we've... We, there's been th- those kind of the comments that have been made about how they wondered where to start the story and things like that and in a weird way it's it's almost like a kind of thing that they've done their job too well where if they've if they decided to have this as kind of a very elongated prologue annoyingly they've done it so well that i kind of want them to carry on with it as if that was the real show <laughs> and yeah. to have it kind of bounce forward in certain ways which we can get to more specifics um yeah it just feels like kind of a shame it feels like they might have shot themselves in the foot slightly at least at this point mm. i mean you know there's plenty of time to to get people back on board and recover but yeah it was just, I, I do kind of wonder how this show might have looked if all of this had been condensed into like a, a, a one episode or two episode prologue and then we were straight in with the story mm. um despite the fact that i really enjoyed it so far so it, it's it's conflicting yeah a friend of mine uh, was sort of joking with me saying that, like, you know, before the season started, 
George R. R. Martin was like, oh, I've been really, you know, involved with this one. And, like, HBO completely shut me out after season four of Game of Thrones. And, like, mm-hmm. now they've come back to me on their hands and knees and given me full creative control. Look what it's going to be like when I've got my hands on it. And then I just get this feeling that, like, when the season is over and there's a few people sort of whispering and going, hmm, maybe they could have made it longer. He's going to do some interview or he's going to write on his blog and he's going to say, like, well... I did ask them to make this four seasons, but they just didn't want to do it. But I think getting everything out of the way so that the dance begins at the end of season one, which is how I imagine it's going to go. It sounds like it, yeah. It it feels like maybe the dance could have started in like season three, maybe, and like maybe stretched it out to six seasons, but I know they have a vision for the show and that's, you know, that's completely fine. I should say as well, despite all this, I think this is a good episode. It's just not. A, and it's just yeah. not a great one. It's made me think that, like behind the scenes, you know, they were a little bit worried about people's interest running out if they didn't get mm-hmm. to the dance before too long. Because this this ten year time jump, it feels like it chops out quite a lot of crucial connective tissue. It doesn't yeah. ruin the episode or spoil the story or anything like that, but it does preoccupy, like you were worried about, any new viewers with two things, which is one, keeping up with the story, while two, mm-hmm. adjusting yet again to a lot of rapidly developing events. It's, you know, like, when the episode started, I did think of Lizzie in the immediate, like, you know, the first sort of four or five minutes, like, to how she's coping with like yeah. all of these characters it's mainly the children just the number of children that get thrown in and it just makes me wonder if like maybe they could have done 12 episodes and just maybe, maybe? yeah I, we yeah. did think we did have the thing we thought it felt like there was an episode missing before this one yeah. but I don't even necessarily think it needed another episode and, and as I say we'll get to the specifics but there are specific things where I'm kind of like I feel like you could have spent a bit of time in the first batch of episodes establishing well Harwin <laughs> but we'll get to it mm. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah yeah. but I will say like you know it's a good episode of a, a great show so far that I think is doing really interesting things. I think Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook step into their roles really well. Definitely. Um, the emergence and fleshing out of Laris Strong has been really effective so far. Mm. Um, and as Gretchen Felker Martin, she tweeted something which I think sums up the show brilliantly up to this point, um, which is this show is about. Those who love fucking Rhaenyra, those who wanted to fuck Rhaenyra but didn't get to, and those who got to but wish they hadn't. It's <laughs> quite apt. Yeah. Um, I also think that there's a pretty strong theme in this episode spelled out by the monologue at the end of just children and what they mean yeah. to their respective royal parents. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll dive in. What happy news this morning. Indeed, Your Grace. <laughs> Where is he? Where is my grandson? There he is. A fine prince. Sturdy. You will make a fearsome knight. Yes, you will. Does the babe have a name yet? We haven't spoken. Joffrey. He'll be called Joffrey. 
It's an unusual name for a Valerian. I do believe he has his father's nose. Ten years after her marriage to Lainor Valerian, Princess Rhaenyra gives birth to her third child. Queen Alicent commands that the baby be brought to her immediately. It's established that the child is not Lainor's. It has brown hair, just like his older brothers, Lucerys and Jaceris. This is something Viserys either doesn't see or simply chooses not to, but Alicent insists that Rhaenyra's children are bastards. At the Dragon Pit, Alicent and Viserys' son Aegon pranks his younger brother Aemon, uh, Aemond, the only prince yet to own a dragon, by gifting him a pig. Aemon then sneaks into the Dragon Pit but has to escape when a dragon notices him and breathes fire. Alicent scolds Aegon for his behaviour, stressing that he must remain loyal to his family and that he must prepare to fight Rhaenyra for the Iron Throne. So we will start with this opening sequence. Um, mm -hmm. What a terrific introduction for Emma Darcy. Like, yeah. really stunning single take, really good display from Emma there. I just, I don't know. I, I, always, I always admire actors who just have this ability to hold sweat on their face and strain in such a way that if I know I was doing it, I'd be like worried about bursting a blood vessel in my forehead. Yeah. Um, they really come into the show in very, very strong fashion. There's some great squelching sound effects. Oh God, there's so many. Um, the pain and the cringe of watching Rhaenyra walk, like the afterbirth spilling out onto the floor. It's all yeah. yucky and it's honest and it's really effective, and you get little, just little shots where people walk in front of the camera where you can see they've done the cut, but the cut's really effortless, and they transition yeah. into the next bit so that you get this good continuous take from one room to another, taking her across, taking um, uh, Joffrey across the castle, and the little moments where Rhaenyra pauses, like, fuck, and like, you know, she's clearly in a lot of pain, and like, she can't walk, yeah. and... Yeah, really, really, really well done. I don't know what you thought of it. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was It's that thing of when something is so... Because this show in Game of Thrones doesn't really do anything like that. <laughs> and when you first see the camera, someone walks in um, and the camera is on Rhaenyra and the camera like swoops to look at someone else and then swoops back, it makes you go, oh God, wait, hang on. <laughs> this show doesn't move like that. Like, how strange. And it makes you feel kind of tense it's you're waiting for the cut <laughs> you're mm. kind of waiting for the thing to change and i think it's it's driving home the theme that we're going to keep coming back to about um about women in westeros and about birth and all the rest of it and i think it's this is like a, a proper sort of driving the knife home even further because it's like when we've seen birth scenes and these kind of things it's a scene and something happens and then it ends and i think it's for me it seemed a conscious choice for us to see everything in the aftermath of like no no this isn't just a thing that just happens and it's an event this is a just part of someone's life Rhaenyra has to walk from her from her birthing bed and people are just around and normal life's carrying on and this poor person this poor woman is in absolute agony mm. and yeah as you say the there's so many little small touches about uh, the one that really got me was kind of the the very last bit where she walks past a uh, uh, a completely silent Sir Kristen 
Um, and then the camera just pulls yeah. back enough so that you can see the bloodied footsteps, and it's like, oh Jesus! Um, yeah, it was really, really affecting. Mm. I liked it a lot. But I'm, <laughs> but. I'm, I'm not one to rewrite episodes of TV. But I kept thinking while watching this: Would there have been a way to ease the transition between Millie and Emma? And... Possibly, I I was I was picturing them doing like an Indiana Jones like you know where like it's in the th- is it the third one where he's like a kid and it, he gets the hat and he like bows the hat down and then it comes back up and it's Harrison Ford. I was expecting well, something like that. There was something like that going on in my head. Like I like I don't right like I say I don't like to rewrite episodes of TV because it's very hard and like yeah, you don't want to like. Sh- you don't want to take a red pen to everything that like they're doing like, Oh no, I will. I would have done this and I would have done this. Yeah. And like the episode is long enough as it is, but Rhaenyra as a child, she, and as she's growing up and as she's an adolescent and becoming a woman and stuff, she feels mm-hmm. trapped by her sex and her yeah. gender. And I would have liked to have seen how it felt for her when she found out that she was pregnant that was yes. the thing that she was really scared of. It was, I don't want to get pregnant. I don't want to die like my mum. And this mm-hmm. is kind of what I mean by the episode chopping out bits of tissue that could have been quite valuable. Because imagine that moment where Rhaenyra finds out that she's pregnant and it just mm-hmm. like it just goes woof like that. And it the whole world must have collapsed onto her. And... It, it kind of made me start thinking, like, how could they have done this without doing a whole other episode? Yeah. And it made me think, have you watched at least the first two seasons of Catastrophe? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Unfortunately, I'm about to spoil Catastrophe for you and for a bunch That's of other fine. people. <laughs> at least the first season. So uh-huh. I don't know if you know the basic premise of Catastrophe. I don't. Um, it's a great show. Four seasons, fantastic, really fantastic comedy drama. Love it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So Rob Delaney is an American businessman, comes over to the UK on business for work at the business factory. And while he's <laughs> in the UK, he has a one-night stand with uh, Sharon Horgan. Mm-hmm. And they're both just called Rob and Sharon in the show as well, so it makes the next three minutes of my life very easy. So... Sharon wakes up one morning, she's about 40 years old, between 40 and 45, and so she gets a pregnancy test and she finds out that she's she's pregnant, and she phones uh, Rob, who's back in America, and says, listen, you know we had that one night stand, um, I'm pregnant, and so Rob comes over and moves his whole life over to the UK. And so the first season covers about six episodes, covers about nine months. Um, yeah. They they try to make a go of it as a couple. And, you know, Sharon gets bigger and bigger and bigger as she's pregnant. And, like, they get married because, like, they realise they really like each other. And, you know, they just want to be married before Sharon has the kid. And then on their wedding night, Sharon goes into premature labour while they're having an argument. Uh-huh. And... The, the cut-off point of season one is Sharon saying, it's it's too early, this is wrong. And then that's it. And it just cuts to black and you're like, oh shit, what's happened with the boy? Like, what's happened with, <laughs> like, what's happened with the baby? <laughs> and then 
The season two, the opening scene is Rob and Sharon lay in a house in in bed rather than in a hotel. Uh-huh. And Sharon is pregnant. She's got a huge heaving belly. And so you're sort of like, oh, it's a flashback. Like, this is pretty cool. And then it gets all turned on its head. And then all of a sudden, the child that they had at the end of season one runs into the room and you find out that it's about three years in the future and Sharon's pregnant a second time. Right, okay. And so I started thinking, was there a way to do this where Millie Alcock finds out that she's pregnant and then we find out maybe that it could be Sahawin Strong's baby or something like that. And then we cut away and then we cut back to Emma Darcy in labour and you think this is a bit odd. Why have they aged up over the course of nine months? But then when you find out that it's the third, that it's um, Rhaenyra's third child, it's like, oh. And yeah. so you get the time jump with the, the emotional impact of Rhaenyra finding out that she's pregnant. And that would be, I don't know, that may have been a slightly cleaner way to go about it. Maybe I've just wasted everybody's time for five minutes explaining something that sounds shit. <laughs> but that yeah. was something I was workshopping in my mind and in any fan fiction that I won't write, um, that could be a solution, possibly. <laughs> well, well, I think it speaks It speaks to my... The, the big thing for me... Well, there's, there's two and they're kind of interconnected, but we won't get to Damon and Lena until a little bit later. But they're they're kind of the same issue, which is that we're, I think it asks a bit too much of the audience, the time jump. Mm. Um, especially given how Rhaenyra has been, you mentioned the whole thing about her being so, so scared to be pregnant. Absolutely true. And it is kind of shocking to just suddenly go, oh yeah, she's got three kids now. And obviously it's presented as horrific with, the, with that opening scene, mm. but for me, the Harwin Strong thing was the one that really got me because I was like, do people who haven't read the books, have they even noticed him? Because I've been quite impressed with how subtly he's been introduced. Mm. Like, I thought it was going to be kind of a, a cool rewatch bonus to be like, oh yeah, this character who becomes a main a big deal. He was there all, you know, in the first few episodes, he was there all along. And I, I don't know, I feel like people might have missed him completely only to just kind of have, you know, someone click their fingers and suddenly he's the father to her children mm. like i feel like seeing the origin of that relationship because there's if it was one child you'd go oh, okay well we've just seen rhaenyra getting all like horny and whatnot and being all i'm the princess i can do what i want so oh, okay so she had an affair with someone but with three kids and with them kind of making like nice faces and expressions at each other and him clearly being warm to his children and everyone else around kind of all thinking it and kind of all being agreed that that's probably what happened i don't know it felt like it asked too much of of us to kind of go and like i say it's it's that thing of you've set up this prologue so well that i want to see these these characters lives play out not play out in bullet point form <laughs> mm. i want to see them play out properly in front of us mm. and it, i was like i feel like yeah we, we would have liked to have seen the origin of that relationship yeah um, agreed yeah, yeah i think that was that was the biggest thing for me and it's the same issue i think with damon and lena but we'll come to that yeah still we are where we are and it is good and enjoyable still i mean i think it's helps it helps that we're uh book readers and we don't have to worry about these things too much but it means that i can focus on all the little touches like Lainor trying to say the right things but coming across as like completely ignorant of rhaenyra's pain yeah. 
naming the child Joffrey without really asking and just sort of jumping in there like third child, not even my child. I'm being forced into this deal. So I'm going to try and get my stake in there a little bit. Like yeah. I'll try and put, you know, plant a, you know, plant a seed in there a little bit and watch it grow. Um, Alison commanding for the baby to be brought to her and then immediately turning around like, oh, dearie me, little Ray Ray, oh, you must be honestly. resting. <laughs> Fantastic introduction for Olivia Cook. Just like, it's a proper, <laughs> like, Cersei, sarcastic, like, um, what is it? Um, it, it's the, um, your, your grace, I have travelled a long way. You must be exhausted. She's <laughs> <laughs> just, just carrying on ignoring her. Classic Cersei. I mean, I've I've tried not to compare Alison with Cersei too much because it just feels a bit convenient. Like it just feels a bit easy. I always thought that Alison reminded me of like I don't know, just like other people, not really Cersei. I think people have just yeah. kind of looked at a white brown haired woman in King's Landing and have gone, oh well, of course, you know, like if, yes, well they look similar. So um, and they're the queen <laughs> consort. So you know, it just. Yeah, it, they're quite different characters, definitely, yeah. and yeah, but it is. It was quite a. It was quite an introduction, and I feel like maybe this is one episode. I we can't judge the season's not over. It felt very, um, felt very in favor of the blacks in this episode. Let's put it yeah, that way. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I do think we're going to get. I mean, we are definitely going to get stuff further down the line. That because I mean, the blacks as they are eventually going to become known um they don't exactly have the world's nicest people on their side oh god no um gotta say though in this scene just moving on slightly viserys's arm is hysterical (laughs) i know right (laughs) the way he just kind of comes in like jutting off to the side like they've not even gone it just is his full arm gone now or is it like just the elbow and like oh god it's just like it made me think that like eventually it'll just be like a future arm ahead like, and yeah. whenever we see him next, he's just going to hop into the room in this small jar full of water. And, like, you know, someone's going to feed him fish food, like the Leonard Nimoy thing. And, like, it just, oh, God. It was quite on the nose. You feel like if if that had happened in real life, you'd, you'd, pin, the, you'd pin the sleeve back, surely. You wouldn't just have it dangling <laughs> to make sure that the audience sees it. Like, oh, God. Very funny. Um, but it, I, I, I think that speaking of like it being kind of in favor of the blacks versus the greens and stuff i you know the next part along was the bit about the the kids who i think were introduced quite well i mm. liked how the kids were introduced um yeah. <laughs> Amond gets his uh um is it Amond or aegon is it aegon at the yes. window <laughs> is what uh, aegon at the window yeah gets his kind of his entry <laughs> it's like okay we're dealing with another one of those maybe are we yeah I love that introduction. Um, I think that's fantastic. I think that's such a great way to like give a character's nature that he would masturbate out of a window in full view of the public. No real care for if he's ever to if he's to reach climax wherever it lands or yeah. like you know who cares? <laughs> like it just oh yeah, people had a lot of fun with that uh, with memes and gifs and things like that. Just with regards to Viserys, you know, he is so ill now that, like, I genuinely wondered for a second if he wasn't just humouring Rhaenyra and Laenor by saying that Joffrey had Laenor's nose. Like, 
You think <laughs> a he's just bit, yeah. like willfully blind to the truth, but maybe he's literally unable to tell anymore. <laughs> like the guy is <laughs> rotting from the left hand side, <laughs> and like you just kind of sit there thinking, could he? Could he focus properly anymore? Like, you know, he's yeah. he's 70. Well, he looks 70 even though he's about 50. And surely his vision must be going now. And like, it, <laughs> so like you know, I was genuinely, for a second, I had to sort of second guess myself and go, no, he, he is just being nice, isn't he? Like, he is just, just pretending being because he's under a lot of... Yes, he is just being Viserys under a lot of pressure. But that was... Oh, God, that was a funny moment. Um <laughs> We get a little laugh with the pink dread. Um, yeah, that yeah. that's a good laugh. Um, did you spot the um the when when Aemond goes into the dragon pit? Did you find it a bit funny the way that he walks down that slope into the? Um, I don't remember dragon pit. It just felt like they grabbed him with a computer <laughs> mouse and dragged him down the stairs. Like it just <laughs> felt a bit. I'll look out for that next time I watch it. <laughs> um, quick question: Which dragon do you think he sees? I can't remember which one he yeah, ends up with because he does end up with one, doesn't he? he yeah, he does. But like I, that dragon that comes out of the the pit and scares him away, I just can't think of who no. that could be because it's not Vagar, obviously. But like you know, it's pretty big, whichever yeah. dragon that was. But I mean, we'll find out eventually. But anyway, well, but it was it was yeah. a good scene. I think it was a good scene to set up the dynamic between the two sets of <laughs> the two sets of uh um well they're not triplets but <laughs> the the, the mm. two sets of three yeah um because that's obviously going to become very important as they get older um and yeah i thought it was a good introduction to kind of show us each of them mm. um with their own kind of personality and kind of drive home the, to the audience like yeah wow they really don't look like targaryens do they <laughs> <laughs> yeah um just speaking of the third child on the green side, um, Helena. Yes. We get introduced to Helena. Um, just for anyone listening, um, he'll have to close one eye is a nice little moment there for book readers. Yep. Just a little bit of a nod. Just a little mm-hmm. bit of a... <laughs> you, know, um, you know, Helena maybe is a dreamer. We're not 100% sure. But... Helena's quite strange, and they do yeah. this by giving her—is it millipedes or centipedes for a pet? It's a, it's a, it's a millipede, and I know very well because uh, <laughs> my girlfriend really, really doesn't like them. So I had to shield her <laughs> eyes from the screen when that was happening. Oh God! Yeah, the um, just the way that she's letting it crawl all over her hands and stuff—it kind of reminded me a little bit of. Um, Sadly, it was a scene that was cut out of the Game of Thrones finale where Bran mm. lets a beetle crawl across his hand. Um, okay. And that would have been quite nice because that's a little bit of a parallel to um, smash the beetles! Smash them! Oh, God, yeah. Um, but never mind. Yeah, the the Helena thing. Uh, go back at everyone. Well, just, just to say, everyone, go back and watch that. Um, in like when we're in the middle of season two or season three, I feel like yeah, go back and watch Helena in this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Alison then comes into a scene after that, and she's very. They, I, one thing I really do like about the sudden shift in time is that they've managed to ramp up the the paranoia that Rhaenyra yeah. and Alison have. They're both so paranoid. 
Yeah. They, 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 like, you know, when um, Rhaenyra has, you know, Joffrey in his you know, the, the one mention of Alicent, and it's just like, the mood shifts. And it's like, I must be the one to do this. I must be the one to do this. It must be me. I must face her. And then in yeah. the later scene where Alicent is like screaming at Aegon, like, you are the challenge. You are the challenge to her succession. And just like, she'll come and take away everything that we've got. And it's just like, you know, how do they sleep at night? You know? Just Yeah. No idea. Definitely. It's, yeah. it's, it, I think we've, we've, we've said a lot of negative things so, so far, but there are lots of positives. And one of the positives is it's really setting up the kind of powder keg <laughs> that King's Landing is going to become. Mm. Um, that sense of paranoia is very apparent and whether or not you fall on one side or another you know they've done a good job of making sure that we understand the motivations of people Mm. like Alicent even when she yeah if you're going to end up not liking how it goes it's still it makes perfect sense and yeah Olivia Cook has has kind of come onto the scene with a bang (laughs) (laughs) because she's really really great in this definitely Um, I didn't realise as well she's not from far away from me she's from Oldham um, I watched this and was like, yeah. um, I think probably because Google, uh, YouTube listens to me when I talk. Um, I did turn on YouTube and there was a recommended video that was like her um, and Emma Darcy talking to each other. And I turned it on and was like, wow, you're from Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, for those who were listening on to the side of the Atlantic, um, Oldham and Stockport are kind of like suburban towns near Manchester like uh, yeah. if you know if the greater Manchester area was a clock Oldham would be at like two o'clock one o'clock mm-hmm. and Stockport would be at like five o'clock uh, yeah. so they're kind of near to each other drive through Oldham every now and again so it's good to hear a local voice on, uh, <laughs> I mean I suppose you know we had John Bradley he on Game of Thrones he was only from Withenshaw um, it's true. Withenshaw's at like seven o'clock on this Greater Manchester clock that we've uh, composed for you. Hope it's a really <laughs> evocative image that we've created there. <laughs> As things stand, Renew will ascend the throne, and Jocera's Targaryen will be her heir. So, oh, you are nearly a man grown. How is it that you can be so short-sighted? If Renew comes into power. Your very life could be forfeit. Eamon's as well. She can move to cut off any challenge to her succession. Then I won't. You are the challenge! You are the challenge, Egon! Simply by living and breathing! You are the king's firstborn son. And what they know, what everyone in the realm knows, in their blood and in their bones, is that one day you will be our king. Later on, Sir Kristen Cole is training the young princes with Sir Harwin. Kristen notices that Harwin favours Luke and Jace and goads him into uh, fighting him, which substantiates rumours that Harwin is in fact the father of Rhaenyra's children. Hand of the King Lionel Strong berates his son for his behaviour. Rhaenyra forbids Laenor from leaving King's Landing to fight in the Stepstones, which have fallen back into the hands of the Triarchy, or at least being contested by some armies and the Triarchy again. Meanwhile, Laenor has made a new friend, Karl. In an attempt to secure political peace between the Targaryens and House Hightower, Rhaenyra offers to marry Jace to Alicent's daughter, Helena. Viserys encourages this proposal, but Alicent rejects it. Or sort of doesn't immediately do it in the room, but 
isn't that keen on it later. Um, yeah. Sir Kristen, good chance to talk about Sir Kristen in this episode. I don't know what notes you've made about him. <laughs> Other than to say, I'm pretty sure everyone who everyone in the fan base will have absolutely turned on him by this episode because he is just dripping with contempt. Yeah. Like when he's introduced, he's kind of a little bit wide-eyed, maybe a little bit naive, but you get a sense of like honor and stuff from him. And oh, he seems like a nice dude. And wow, this time skip, he's become very, very bitter. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I really liked the way he was playing it, the way it kind of plays on you. You just you, we've seen him before. We want him to carry on being like that. We've we've seen him be nice, and especially when he starts like being a dick to the kids as well. You're like, mm. come on now. Like I, I really liked that whole scene. I, I like it when it's just characters having conversations, right? It's characters doing things like living their lives. It's not really, but it's not really about plot. Um, so I liked the scene in general. But yeah, it, it, I think. Every, surely there can't be anyone out there who's a Christian stan anymore. There may be. There may be. You Maybe. know, big big green guys who are just like, nothing my side does is wrong. Um so Christian, yeah, big jealous guy energy in this episode, and I yeah. love it. I love like seeing Sir Christian go from whoever he was in the first and second episode to this. Well, yeah. it's just yeah, it's pretty uh Pretty fun. Um, whenever I see him, I keep thinking about how it's a really wonderful subversion of um, Hell Hath No Fury, like a woman scorned. Like, <laughs> That's true. It's like, you know, Hell Hath No Fury, like Sir Kristen, who slept with Rhaenyra that one time and got really, really attached and... Oops, <laughs> Still not over it. <laughs> yeah, didn't work out that well. Um, I think as well, this scene, it confirms for me that Sir Harwin beating Sir Kristen and being sacked immediately from the City Watch confirms to me that it's rank that saved Sir Kristen after the wedding in sure, episode yeah. five. That, you know, Sir Harwin is outranked by the head of the King's Guard and so he's done, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it does, uh, yeah, it does mean that He's able to, I, I guess, you know, Sir Kristen was able at the time to just kind of lie and say, well, you know, he was saying all sorts of things and you saw that knife and who knows what he would have done and that yeah. sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it's maybe, you know, it, it, I still think there was a tidier way to do that wedding, but meh. Um, I also think this is another scene. This is where I think it becomes quite thematically strong this episode another scene where older men raise innocent children to be violent thugs simply because of their personal beef with each other yeah it's the same as those young lads in episode four who only end up fighting because their families apparently hate each other for reasons that nobody really Uh, remembers anymore and it kind of makes me think of um is it uh season one of the sopranos um where you have that whole I could be mixing these things up, but Tony has all of those flashbacks about how his father was with him. And then the episode ends on the shot of Tony and AJ squirting cream into each other's mouths. Um, The squirty cream. um, I forget. It's uh, down neck, I think, or something like that it's called. But, um, Mm -hmm. But like with that, it's like a visual metaphor for like, you know, Tony's handing on all of the things that are wrong with him, he's putting them onto AJ and the way they do it is by playing a little game where like he does it 
into his into his mouth like they're playing around right. in the kitchen and this feels quite similar where it's like Sir Kristen and Sir Harwin are like love rivals and they're making brothers and half brothers and cousins and stuff like that just like beat each other to a pulp and then they eventually take the kids out of it and just have it you know they have it off with each yeah, other in, yeah. the, in the courtyard um, yeah it's really good I just think and like Viserys as well like in that scene like trying to shout like Aegon do be careful and like no one's yeah. listening to him no one can hear him he's just like you know rotting away in a chair talking about like he does this a couple of times in the episode where he's just sort of like he just starts reminiscing about stuff and there's like Sir Lionel looks at him like hmm and there's another one as well where Alison's like listen clearly clearly those children are not Lainors and his yeah. whole thing is like well I had a horse once that did this and it came out like this and then in this scene with the with the combat stuff in the courtyard he's like oh, this is what it's like, eh? Lads, pe- yeah. beat each other down and pick each other up. And it's like, what are you talking about? He's just, he's already gone full on old man. And he's like, yeah. I guess he's like 60 now. Like, or is he sort of like mid fifties maybe? Cause I'm trying to think how old he was at the start of the show. Yeah, I think but, yeah. regardless of what it actually is, we're clearly supposed to, think that it's kind of it's it's advanced <laughs> faster yes. than it would have yeah a lot of people surprised <laughs> they even kind of made it to this episode <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah. yeah i saw some people wondering whether or not that you, kind of the end was supposed to be a kind of oh and now he's dead cliffhanger mm. <laughs> obviously it wasn't but in some ways it was because <laughs> he's never gonna quite be himself i do kind of like the fact that though like it just feels like viserys kind of probably wants to die but like he's one of those people unfortunately like it does happen to people sometimes where they're so ill that they just kind of give up but their body's like well i'm not ready yet so i'm gonna make you stay around like you know i'm gonna make you stay in this flesh prison for a bit longer yeah and- like it makes me think of well. It always makes me think of um, of uh, Rob Baratheon, of yeah. you know the give me something for the pain and let me die. Whereas I guess the difference with Viserys is that um, Robert didn't really care about much, but Viserys does want people to get along. <laughs> so I feel like although he might be feeling a bit, give me something for the pain and let me die, he still mm. wants to kind of. St- you know, there's that whole thing I said, you know, him making this model, he's clearly kind of obsessed with legacy and what's going to happen after him. And I yeah. feel like he wants to at least convince himself that things are going to be okay once he's gone and everyone's going to get along. Hmm. Um, there's a little thing in here with uh, Lainor and Carl. Um, Lainor has, <laughs> I think he's withstood about as much as he can. Uh, like I've played my part here. The wise sailor yeah. flees before it, the storm gathers, and like I think he's ready to go off and be with Carl. Um, and it's it's kind of nice that Rhaenyra can acknowledge that as well. But Rhaenyra's also like, listen, this is a bargain that we entered into. <laughs> yeah. And hmm. Um. With with Lainor though, I find it very interesting because like in the books, I know it's never fully confirmed about the skin colour of the Valarians. It's just that they have silver hair, and then yeah. we just assume that they have the same... You know, there's enough evidence to assume that the Valarians are white in the books, presumably. Yeah. And so when it comes to the matter of Rhaenyra's children, 
it makes it more of a speculative oh, yeah. thing. You know, like, yes, you know, her husband does have white hair, but we all know, like, I don't know, like, you know, sometimes these things happen. Whereas in the show, I feel like, because obviously there's a very big difference between Jace, Luke, and their father. Um, yeah. And it's one that is immediately apparent that you don't even have to sit and think about. Like, it's right there, which makes me think the show is doing it slightly differently to the way that the books do it. Because I know that in the books from memory, Rhaenyra and Lainor, their marriage is quite openly one of political and public arrangement it's like uh-huh. and i think all of the public know as well or the public don't really care where it's just like oh they're just married because they have to be and they attend events together and then they get on and do whatever they want like yeah outside of that and they all the other public you know it's not like jamie and cersei where it's like we must keep this a secret but it's kind of an open secret anyway it just feels like nobody in the general public in king's landing is bothered enough by what Rhaenyra and Lainor get up to, that yeah. they're not going to be that fussed if Rhaenyra's kid is a bastard or whatever. It's like, oh well, it's the king, you know, yeah, whoever. Like, and it makes me think that like it's kind of emphasizing the point that like it's only really the people very close to them, like Alison and Aegon eventually, and like you know the the people who are going to be contesting Rhaenyra for the throne and things like that, they're the ones that it really matters to, and it it does make Alison, it does make Alison's point of view. I think we do sit with Alison's point of view with all of this because like she's like you must be banging her head against the wall, like t- talking to Viserys, like <laughs> look, her child is white. He's he's got white skin. How can you not see this? And then Viserys is like. Well, I had a horse that did this. Alison must want to go and pitch herself off the red keep, like just bang her head against the wall. You know, just go. She must be going insane, like just sort of like sitting there, like for God's sake, how can nobody see this? And so, or like at least if they do, why is no one saying anything? And so it's interesting yeah. how it's playing it slightly differently to the the books where with like with the books, it's kind of like maybe there's a little bit of rumor. Like, oh, well, Lainor was seen crying by Joffrey's bedside for six days, and yeah. of course he's in love with him, and like stuff. And it, it just, it, there's all, there's no scandal with Rhaenyra and Lainor's arrangement, at least as far as the public are concerned. Yeah, in definitely. this, and it feels like that's why Alicent doesn't have a lot of public support at the moment. It just sort of feels like it's Alicent, like, hello can you not see this <laughs> <laughs> there's also the issue of like I, I saw someone mention this like i mean she's the heir yeah like she is the heir her her children are still her children <laughs> yeah like so yeah you wonder how the how how that's going to kind of play out um what you really need is a a john aaron to come in and say in many, in more ways than one, the seed is strong. The seed is strong, yeah. <laughs> Just about the um, Rhaenyra, the the betrothal offer. I think this moment where she starts lactating is really sad. Like, yeah, n- not so much because the men in the room stop taking her seriously. Like that, that is sad. But I think the saddest thing about it is that it's Alison that points it out to her. It's like, yeah, this rare moment of like woman to woman. Like, 
somewhere in there, they both... I don't know if they love each other anymore, but they have a shared kinship. They have a shared experience. And you can see in that moment that it's two women whose relationship has slowly been eroded over time by all the scheming of the men around them. And, like, it's just... I I don't know. it, it, It is quite sad that, that, like... They're looking at each other at odds across the table and they can't really see the wood for the trees because they're so deep in all of the patriarchal scheming and stuff that's rubbed off on them in the 10 years hence. And it's yeah. it's really, really sad because, like, you know, it's embarrassing and humiliating for Rhaenyra. It shouldn't be, but it is. Um, and the fact that it's Alicent that points out because she's the one that knows what's going on like none of the men seem to really they all sort of they do that thing where like anything with feminine hygiene gets raised in the conversation and they go oh I don't want to talk about this and it's just it's just such a shame that like yeah and again there's another one even there like Lainor is not present for the birth in the the start of the episode he's just he comes in afterwards like oh heard it's happened heard it's a boy well done he means well but like come on like and they're just so squeamish about it and like the only person who can understand her is the only person who she just can't get through to anymore and it's the same for both of them it's such it is such a shame um i don't know if you have any notes about that that's where the prologue thing i think is shines through because seeing them be friends for a few episodes yes does kind of bring that into relief where you're kind of like Oh yes, that if if something like that had happened in an, in an earlier episode, Alison would have like helped her. She would have like taken her to one side, and she would have like they would have figured it out as friends. And it's just that yeah, there is now a line in the sand where they they're just they're just people, as you say, people opposite a table who have opposite interests. Yeah, it really is sad. And the other thing as well that just from this part of the episode that I wanted to note is um, Viserys going back to his chambers and being really upset and missing emma and stuff like that and then he looks up and what does he see sees another rat getting into the red keep i love this continuous motif of like just there's rats everywhere decay yeah decay and like rotting and also a little thing which i think we'll probably talk about in season two um (laughs) with regards to rats and the red keep and things like that but yep yeah it's yeah it's there and it's interesting and it's cool and it makes me think that this show is doing more show than tell than I think I've given it credit for so mm-hmm. far. I think one of the things that maybe people had trouble with towards the end of Game of Thrones is that Benioff and Weiss are when it comes to like big emotional moments and stuff, they prefer to just let images do the talking. You know, like they don't have big exp- they don't really do big explainers for like how characters are feeling like the whole obviously the big turning well it's not really a turn it's just like it's a moment with um Daenerys on the walls of King's Landing on the back of Drogon and it's like you know they don't have her turn to the camera and say I'm feeling this way it's just it's something that like we see it in a facial expression and then it goes and like you're either on board with that kind of stuff or those kinds of decisions or you're not and so I, it turns out I really am. And it just, with rats and stuff like that, they're just hinting at something. They're just, it's just there. You can draw your own conclusions as to why rats are suddenly all over the Red Keep. 
Yeah. And it's nice. It's just, I like things that just kind of let me draw my own conclusions instead of just telling me <laughs> what I'm supposed to be thinking. The tenants would pay their tributes annually to their new Targaryen lord. You would have your freedom of the city and the harbour, as befits your royal station. Continue. Lys and its allies rise again. The Triarchy has made common cause with Corin Martell of Dawn. At any moment, they may turn their sights north. Your family has dragons. Three now, mayhaps four in the future. My aim is to protect Pentos from the lustful eye of the Triarchy. Aid Pentos in this, as Egon once did. And my gratitude will fill your cup and overflow it. In Pentos, Daemon Targaryen and Lena Velaryon have been married for several years and are travelling the world. They have two children together, Rhaena and Bela. Wanting the power of their dragons, Caraxes and Vagar, a lord of Pentos uh, offers them both lordships if they stay to fight the Triarchy. Daemon wants to stay while Lena wants to return home. Later, Lena, who is pregnant with their third child, goes into labour. The labour is prolonged, however, and requires a C-section to save the child, but it will kill uh, Lena. And knowing that she is doomed either way, Lena staggers to Vagar and commands her to burn her to death. Um, some good stuff in Pentos, I think. Not as emotionally impactful as I think it wants me to think that it is. Uh-huh. But uh -huh. it's good. Um, first of all, Essos, hello. Welcome to House of the Dragon. <laughs> hello. Good to see you while. again. We haven't seen Essos in a Game of Thrones episode of any kind, whether it's Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon, since 2016. Wow, really? Yes. Yeah, end of season six. That's the last time we go there. Wow, that's crazy. Which is stunning to me. Um, I'm kind of glad. I know this for a fact that like the show does not go that far back into the triarchy again. Because for God's sake, not again. Like we, <laughs> we just got rid of the crab feeder like three weeks ago. Just like yeah. just get rid, just go away. Like I love Viserys in this episode where somebody mentions the triarchy and he's like, God, are we ever going to be rid of that fucking place? <laughs> the yeah. Stepstones. Are we ever going to get rid of it? Um, yeah, what do you what do you make of the the Pentos stuff with Damon and Lena? So it, I obviously alluded to it earlier. It's the same thing with Harwin Strong. I think, um, it, it, in a way, it's even more kind of a, it's more of a shock to the system because I don't know. Damon seems like such a different person in this episode that I maybe would have liked to have seen something to lead me into this change because they just dance together in in. At the yeah. wedding, like that's it. You, you, I don't even think they exchange more than like two words. But I would have liked it a bit more than that because I really liked Lena. I thought that she was really well played and gave a real strong sense of character and personality. And and then she and then she dies. And it's the same thing with um uh with Harwin, where I was like, these are two characters that have probably should have been introduced earlier. That now you've introduced them. I'm quite liking both of them. I'm seeing them, but oh, they're both dead. Yeah. Okay. And I, I get it. I get, I get that we now, you know, I get that the, the, the symmetry there between Rhaenyra and Damon both losing those people, like the symmetry there. I think that's the kind of the, the way we're supposed to look at it. But 
Um, I liked the Pentos stuff a lot because it, it's new setting and stuff. It's well, new, but new for the show. And I liked how um, I, I really, really, really love. Let's shout out to all the visual effects artists for Vagar mm. because she looks ancient. Yeah, and it's it was quite affecting for me to me and quite sad. Like when her and Damon are flying around in the air, it it's like she's turned into dust in the air, and I, it, I, it was really really quite powerful to just see this very old looking creature. It kind of reminded me. I it was very very powerful. It also kind of made me laugh because it reminded me of that um, picture where it's like. Um, a picture of a cat and it's like it's the world's oldest cat who's like 35 or something and it looks exactly how i'd expect the world's cat world's oldest cat to look sick of your shit <laughs> i was like that's exactly how vegar looks sick of it's sick of being alive um so yeah i really really loved that um i'm not i mean i guess you can say say how you thought of it i'm not quite sure how i feel about the change to the to how she dies compared to the book i'm not i'm kind of mm. not sure where i land on that where do you land on that well the thing with vega first of all is just for people who don't know who are listening to us who've not read the books um vega was there when egon came over yeah to the seven kingdoms like and formed them and it was uh was it visenia that rode vega um, yes. Yeah. With, uh, is it Maraxis as well? Was the other dragon? And yeah. There's um, it gets referenced in season two of Game of Thrones when Arya is talking to Tywin about people from history that she admires, and I think she mentions that because um, Tywin goes on about Aegon's conquest, and then she's like, um, and his sisters. You know, yeah. it wasn't just him that did it. There was three of them that did it together. His sister wives, I should say. Uh, we <laughs> know the Targs love a bit of incest. Um, yeah. With regards to the Lena's death, um, I think it's a pretty cool adaptation for the, of the scene for the purposes of the show. Like, Vagar not wanting to do it and then reluctantly giving in because we can see that Lena... Uh, because she can see that Lena's suffering, but... I think my problem with it more than anything was like Ramin Javadi's like got this huge sweeping score mm. and it makes it very clear in that moment that we don't really know Lena because we're given yeah. music that should really wallop you over the head with like how emotional this is and I'm like we've oh. had like five scenes with her <laughs> at yeah, all exactly. and I'm like I'm not sad about this like I think the show wants us to think that it's tragic and like it's sad, but like I don't know. It's just like it here's, here's this woman I whose name I probably wouldn't know if I didn't read the books and okay. yeah, it, it can't <laughs> land. And I think that yeah. as much as I like it for um, for kind of making it because in the books it's kind of just she she becomes ill in childbirth and then isn't it she dies like on the way to try and fly for one last time. Mm. Um, and she just kind of keels over. Um, I like that you know you kind of make it into a bit more of like a it's my it's kind of my decision. I know I'm dying. I'm going to make this decision to to yeah, end my own life on my terms, and that's cool on paper. But this is in you know, for all for all sense purposes a fresh character for this episode, and it, it can't land in that amount of time. And I think it was a shame because I was looking at it going, this looks <laughs> like it should be affecting me more. Mm. Um, 
and it, it just didn't. And I think it is that it's the same thing as Harvard Strong. It's that it's that you've you've jumped you've jumped too far mm. without doing enough groundwork for us to really care emotionally about these characters. Um, and maybe, as I say, maybe they're just hoping that we focus on Damon and Rhaenyra, who we do care about. Um, mm. And maybe it is just a thing of extending the prologue. You end up caring about sort of small things and incidental characters, but again, it just means that. It, they kind of did their job well, making me <laughs> want to care, but didn't quite stick the landing. Yeah, I kind of agree. Um, because the other thing as well that I remember from the book that was done slightly differently here is that Damon and Rhaenyra mourn Lena together because they've all become friends, haven't they? And that's something that they've not done in the show. Where, like, mm-hmm. Rhaenyra's already gone to Dragonstone, and so she visits... Driftmark and like she visits you know other places and like they all kind of they don't see each other all the time but like occasionally they hang out together and when Lena dies they mourn her together I seem to remember and like I'm just sort of reading here that Lena becomes pregnant again and then goes into labour following a day and night of labour she gave birth to a twisted and malformed son who died within an hour uh, with all of her strength gone from her labour and weakened further from grief over her lost child. Childbed fever set in. Um, the maester couldn't do anything about it. Um, and after three days of sickness, she died. It is said that she attempted to reach Vagar to fly one more time, but collapsed on the tower steps where she died. And then Damon carried her back to bed where he sat vigil over Lena's body together with Rhaenyra. So, yeah... It's. I mean, I think it's quite powerful. This, you know, trying to claim her own death in a way. Yeah. You know, it's. It, it obviously the parallel is with Emma a little bit, where Emma mm-hmm. gets absolutely no say in her death or the way that it goes. She ends up as a basically just a spectator to it. She's. It's her that's going to die, and she's unable. She has like you know zero agency or choice in that moment, and obviously. Lena doesn't have much agency either, but she at least can command that she be killed, and so it's a small victory, I guess, for Lena. Yeah. Like it's not, you know, it's the smallest of victories with the smallest S and V in front of them, smallest possible. You know, last line on the optician sightboard, kind of small. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it's. I don't think it's powerful. I think it's pretty good, but I think the, the the way the score rises up, it just makes you think like, oh, they really wanted me to feel for her here. Yeah. Um, and then Damon, like, it feels like it serves Damon's story, which, like, I'm not against using that trope. Like, you know, sometimes in stories, women can die so that a, men, a man's story can progress. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a bit tired, but it doesn't mean that every usage of it is terrible. And this is fine, I think, but it just, it doesn't feel like Lena's going to have impacted much on Damon's character. Yeah. Except maybe for the children that they have, but that's sort of it. Yeah. It's a good scene and everything like, it's fine, you know, and I think we also reveal as well that Damon has found it within himself to care for another human being. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that's why I was kind of like it. Yeah, being able to see the origins of that, I think, would have helped it land a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, someone who changed his ways. 
Yeah, exactly. It's a willful blindness. The king. You'd surely suffer the same affliction if it came to I it. would not. Lord Lionel is to escort Sir Harwin back to Harren Hall to watch over his seat whilst he continues to serve his hand. But the hand is compromised by the acts of his son. My father cannot give unbiased counsel to the king. It is now that I must rue the absence of my own father. He wouldn't hesitate to speak the truth to the king if Otto Hightower was still at hand. You cannot say, my queen, that your father would be impartial in this matter. No, but he would be partial to me. In the final part of the episode, due to the rumours about Sir Harwin, Lionel resigns as Hand of the King, but Viserys rejects his resignation. However, Lionel and Harwin, uh, who has been sacked as head of the City Watch, plan to return to Harren Hall. After Harwin bids an emotional farewell to Rhaenyra, Jaceris asks if Harwin is his father after all. Sensing that her family might be in danger, Rhaenyra leaves King's Landing and journeys to Dragonstone, bringing her sons, Lainor, and Lainor's friend-turned-lover, Carl. Alicent confides in Larys Strong and says that she wishes her father Otto could be back in King's Landing and possibly Hand of the King once again. In response, Larys frees three condemned criminals who journey to Harrenhal and set fire to Lionel and Harwin's chambers, and it kills them both. Alicent is horrified when she discovers that Larys, the new lord of Harrenhal, ordered for them to be killed. So, I think the fire at Harrenhal, I think it's a good decision to push this event forward to mm -hmm. a different time so that it hits a bit harder it's another big event where i'm just like okay like fine i understand but is it hitting me the way that you want it to hit me and i'm not sure that it hits me the way that they wanted it to i don't know about yeah. you yeah it's it's the same thing as lena it's just there's, there hasn't been enough build-up and yeah. we're shown good things about Hartwin. And so we should care more. <laughs> but at this point, it's kind of just like, oh, okay. And it feels, again, it's the same, going back to the same same thing over and over again. If if, you, if you're going to do an extended prologue, needed to have committed to it entirely rather than, I don't know, maybe a season of prologue might have been a bit much. Yeah, but I'm thinking like season... first season up to episode five and then this could be season two. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, you know, but beating that horse dead but th th that's the same feeling that i had in this where it's like i should care more it should be more of a shock to me um but it can yeah it kind of just isn't i will say <laughs> lara strong is one mustache twirl away from being a complete cartoon and i don't even think that that's necessarily bad <laughs> i actually think it kind of fits a little bit maybe yeah. um I, I i hope that they dig a little deeper on laris um, mm. because unfortunately they really didn't dig deeper on Harwin like nobody watching this who's never read the books will even know that Harwin has a nickname and it's a famous nickname because he's meant to be an amazing fighter he's called Breakbones yeah it gets um, a brief mention in like episode 3 and that's yeah. about it and so that's that's a shame that that's kind of cut short when that could have been really cool and so I hope they don't do I hope they give Laris more depth going forward um, because I do think that in all the ambiguities of like interpersonal conflict, having someone who's just kind of a bit of a bastard is kind of refreshing. 
Yeah, I think he's really something. I'm enjoying him a lot. Like, he's a, he's such a slithery, like, evil... Like, it, just the way that he can just... I don't know, just kind of slide into an episode towards the end and then have really big impacts yeah. on it. It's That's cool. Like... I think once you introduce a character who's willing to kill his brother and father to please the queen and inherit a castle, all bets are off with like what they might do. Like it just, yeah. I, I think yeah, they, they've made him a very kind of like they have they, they've made him the kind of character that I think casual viewers at home can sit there and get mad about. Like yeah. oh, I hate it when he turns up, like that kind of thing, and. Um, They've given him this sigil, this this firefly yeah. sigil. Um, so apparently, um, like most species of fire, this is from Wiki of Thrones. Most species of fireflies are pollinators. By comparing Alicent to a flower, it signals Laris's true intentions. Pollinators help the flower, but also feed on its nectar. While the process of pollination helps both the flower and the firefly, sucking on its nectar is only beneficial to the pollinator. Laris plucked the Malvales flower as he or Malvales flower as he broke the news to of his doing to Alison. Laris, like a firefly, is a glimmer of light to the queen with no allies, but the compound in a firefly's light is poisonous. But yeah, he's excellent. He's 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 a lot of fun. When he slithered into the episode, uh, episode three when he was first introduced, like, sorry me ladies, one was not made for hunting or something like that. And you're yeah. just like, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. In you come. Like, and I love the way that he's able to kind of exploit people's perceptions of him of having a, you know, like a club foot. Like, yeah. th- I just love the way that like he's able to use that to get what he wants as well. Like, it's just you know, he clearly mm. people will look at him and go, oh, and he- there he is, yeah. like setting criminals free cutting their tongues out and like sending him to harren hall and yeah amazing really really good stuff really yeah. into him and it's i think as well like after having a whole episode of allison kind of like being a bit of dick mm. um and kind of getting us kind of like against her as an audience i think to end the episode by kind of going and this is the kind of person she's going to end up allying with. <laughs> it kind of makes you go, oh God, she, it, not, it's not necessarily like a sympathy thing necessarily, but it kind of puts you on edge a little bit to be like, oh, okay, so she's getting used. <laughs> she's yeah. definitely, she's making pacts with people who have potentially not her or her family's best interest at heart and more just her own mm. or their own rather. Um, yeah, her reaction is quite something um yeah like i, I, I didn't really ask for that <laughs> yeah. they keep mentioning this handmaiden by the way this handmaiden they keep addressing her by her name talia um uh-huh and it makes me think that she's going to be very important like without spoiling too much for future episodes i have a feeling that she's going to find out something very important before the season is over and she will be the one who is tasked with keeping her mouth shut i know exactly what you're talking about and i think you're right so i was gonna i was thinking yeah. of the other thing but actually yeah i think that's that's actually a really good point i hadn't even noticed until you said it i hadn't even noticed that they've been pointing her out <laughs> they keep and, mentioning her yeah. by name her name is said like has been said like four times 
in the previous couple of episodes and like at the beginning of this one and then like they mention her again at the end and it's just like why do they keep mentioning you by name like they, there's been other handmaidens who have been on screen more but they don't have yeah. names and identities and stuff and it's just made me think like oh like that's what they're doing with her cool okay you know pretty fun so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing if that pays off if it's yeah, not then fair enough i'm wrong and they were just sort of naming her and that's fine you know people can be wrong about things that's true but, yeah <laughs> yeah still who knows um any further notes on the princess and the queen um, I don't think so, other than to just kind of like wrap it up in a bow by saying, although I've had criticisms and maybe it's my maybe it's my least favourite, but even that's kind of like it's that's that's not me saying it's bad. Um, there's I still enjoyed it a lot. I'm still really enjoying being in this world again. And agreed. Yeah. Even when I think there are decisions cropping up that I, I'm not the biggest fan of. I'm still wanting to see where it's going to go and I'm still wanting to see the actors do their thing and bring all the dimensions to these characters that they've been bringing. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, 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 it's all still uh, promising and positive. Yeah. It's all still very good. I think overall it's, it's, I'm looking forward to every episode each time it comes around. So that's fine for me. Yeah. Um, okay, normally at this point of the episode, we would ask Lizzie what her line of the episode is. Um, again, in lieu of her not being able to provide these answers on the podcast, she's texted them to us. So Lizzie says that her favourite line of the episode is, The wise sailor flees the storm as it gathers. Um, her loser of the week, unsurprisingly, is Laris Strong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then for winner she put fucking hell nobody wins in this one A eh? and then she's put let's go with Rhaenyra because why not so <laughs> why not indeed yeah sound reasoning there Lizzie I think we're all backing you up on that one <laughs> wherever you're listening from um, probably just her house to be honest um, <laughs> I think Lizzie will be uh, back for the next episode it's just a bit busy with stuff at the moment you know how life is um, that's true we'll be back uh, next week on uh, it'd be for episode seven, which I think is going to be called Driftmark, um, which is okay, fine. Yeah, that's the title <laughs> of the episode. Well done. See what happens. <laughs> uh, we will see you next time. See you later, everyone. Bye bye.